Overcoming Sin. The title of that lesson I selected in hopes that it would be a statement, a reminder to each of us about the practical reality and blessing of the Word of God. In fact, over the next few moments this morning, I would hope as you and I study together not only the nature of sin, far more noticeably the character of what's involved in overcoming it. Some introductory remarks I thought that might be in order would be these. Isn't it amazing how practical the book that we call the Bible is? It is by far the most practical book ever written. It's not abstract in the sense that it's only, in fact, to be reserved for those lofty discussions and scholarly presentations. It is something you and I can take and every day put into practice and live in the way that we should. A little poem that I would ask you to at least consider. It's very brief. John Henry Newman wrote a poem a long time ago highlighting that practicality. I sought to hear the voice of God and climb the topmost steeple. But God said, go down again, I dwell among the people. You see, the book of God is meant to be taken and applied. God dwells among the people. His words intended for that purpose. Today, as you and I study about this character of overcoming sin, you'll notice that James places a highlighted consideration in James 1.22, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. It's easy to sometimes allow ourselves to be deceived, isn't it? We read, we know what it says, but not putting it into practice, James said, do it. In fact, that's a subtitle in many ways of the lesson today. Just do it. Let's open the lesson then with the first section, highlighting the nature of what is this matter we call sin. Let's remind ourselves of exactly what it is. Let's not allow it to be sugar-coated as the world might describe it. Not allow it to be seen through rose-colored glasses, if you please. But rather to look upon it for what God says that it is. And once we've identified and solidified that thinking, then to appreciate how do we overcome this thing. And so this opening slide will proceed in that very direction. I entitle it Encouragement. But it's an encouragement based on the Word of God in light of this reality called sin. Every single individual who've reached that age of knowing wrong from right are guilty of this thing called sin. Now, it's just a three-letter word, admittedly. But this thing called sin is so weighty. Its consequences are so lasting and so eternal. It's powerful in its character. It'll transform one into what's bad. This nature of sin, for all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. That statement of Romans 3.23 follows a number of verses earlier in which it said, There's none righteous, no, not one. In light of those kinds of comments and those particular statements, I would ask you to notice then, God, what do you mean by sin? Oh, you and I know that there are those who commit murder and rape and they, in fact, abuse children. And we would all agree that that's not good, it's not right, that's sinful. But God, could you define it better than that? And isn't it true the Word of God leaves us no doubt whatsoever? In 1 John 3 verse 4, Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. 
And therefore, any violation in any form of the law of God constitutes sin. And therefore, you and I must be aware of and acquainted with those things which are taught in the Word of God so that we'll know what's involved in violating it. I've listed a number of additional verses at the top of that slide for your consideration. It's true that our language can sometimes be a part of this. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Ephesians 4.29 And therefore, if I say something against the law of God, I'm guilty of sin by virtue of my speech and my language. What about my thoughts? It was mentioned in the Bible class here in the auditorium this morning about one's thinking and how even that can, of course, be guilty of sin. Jesus said that too in Matthew 15, 19, didn't He? As He gave an extensive listing of things constituting sin. And there are matters there like murders and adulteries and so forth. But what else is there? Evil thoughts. There may be a thought that crosses my mind. I never say a word about it to anybody else. And yet that thought may be sinful. It may be inappropriate, ugly, and holy, and holy apart from the things of God. That thought by itself is a sinful thing. Isn't it true that be it our language, our thoughts, certainly our deeds? You can also add to that the nature of even the violation of our conscience on things indifferent. In Romans 14, 23, it says, For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. One by one, as you and I think about this set of listings and these descriptions of sin, it leads us to proceed to ask some additional questions. In fact, isn't it true in James four seventeen, If I know to do something good and choose not to do it, that too is sinful. By now, I believe we're gaining an understanding, aren't we, that this thing called sin is expansive. Any violation of God's law. There are so many examples in the Bible, of course, of those who were admittedly told that they were guilty of certain things like these. What about that woman in John chapter 4? As Jesus had conversation with this Samaritan woman, she seemingly was a person who felt reasonably good about herself. And then, when mention of her family situation came up, go and call thy husband. And she frankly said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, that's the truth. You've had five men, and the man you're with now is not your husband. Here was a man who knew about the circumstances of her heart and life. And all wasn't well. In John chapter 8, a woman brought to Jesus, she too was claimed to have been found in the act of adultery. And the Lord told her to go and sin no more. What she'd been guilty of was not to, to continue. To that we might add the statement of Acts 8 verses 5 and following. When there wasn't it true that Simon, a sorcerer, here was one who himself had heard the nature of the Word of God, but rather quickly had deviated from the truth of it. And in so doing, he was told by Peter, You're in the gall of iniquity, in the bond of bitterness. And wasn't it true that he so decisively wanted to be right with God? He wanted to overcome sin. I know I stand before an audience today, and all of us want to overcome sin, surely. None of us want to be in the grip of it to be overwhelmed by it. 
to live in harmony with it. We want to overcome it. No wonder as we come near the close, the middle of, to the closing part of that slide, might we be quick to say, overcoming sin is not something that we just merely say, I wish. It's not like a genie coming out of a bottle. I want to be free from this matter of sin. It just doesn't happen that way. The God of heaven has determined and set forth things that have to be done in order to be free, in order to overcome sin. Forgiveness is what's required first and foremost. May I suggest to you that that's one of those issues, it seems, that our world has taken and run with in ways that the Word of God doesn't teach. When you and I, when anybody does that which is sinful, violating the will and law of God, the first thing to appreciate it is we violated His will. We violated the will of the Almighty God of heaven, and only He can specify the terms whereby the guilt that would come with that sin can be removed. It's not left to you and me to dictate the terms of that because it's not our will that's been violated. It's His will. Only God can dictate the fact of the terms wherein forgiveness can be received. Isn't it true then we encounter verses like these? And that's why I entitled it Encouragement. God does say that we can overcome sin. As powerful as it may seem, as prevalent as it may appear, as overwhelming as the particulars and the consequences may see, be seen in perspective, the fact still remains we can overcome it. The human family can overcome it individually. But we've got to do it with, on God's terms. Surely, 1 John 5, 4 is a powerful statement of encouragement. Faith overcometh the world. As our faith is described, as the features characteristic of service to God are detailed, it says, that which overcomes the world, this kingdom in which Satan seems to so powerfully reign, that which overcomes it is what the Bible will term faith. No wonder these verses quickly come. Psalm 32, 1, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not wickedness. There's a certain scenario in which God does not impute or account the terms in the matter of wickedness. I'd like to know what those terms are, wouldn't you? I'd like to know the circumstances whereby God does not reckon or account that wickedness. You'll notice as that's quoted in Colossians 1.14, or at least brought before us, aren't you and I impressed, as Paul writes, about the forgiveness available through the blood of Jesus Christ? It may be in fairness to those comments and the encouragement that already has begun to come from them. Look at the victory that's ours. The victory to those who are in the position to overcome sin, who have taken liberty to do those things. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but I bring you peace. John 16, 33. The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through our Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 4, 7. Isn't it true in light of those things, the victory that's ours is highlighted so sweetly in the Bible. I suppose we all like to be winners. We like to be triumphant and victorious. 
2 Corinthians 2.14 says that we are triumph, always led in triumph in Christ. Revelation 12.11 says that you and I, as those who follow the Christ, are those who fully well appreciate we have overcome Satan, self, and sin. And in that description, we're the very ones who have relied on the blood of Christ, on the word that He has given us, and we're even willing to die for His cause. Let's close that slide then and say this. These words of encouragement about being victorious in Jesus, that does bring all of us to recognize this fact. Isn't it often true that one may have a desire to leave the world of sin? Sin may not be so quick to go. We realize that our past has to be faced. The mistakes that I've made, the choices in which I live, all of that may provide a matter which will haunt me for some time. But yet, as I appreciate the fact of the New Testament, I can no longer choose to live in those things. I can choose to be victorious and live in that way that pleases God. Didn't Paul say it like this? As you come near the close of that slide, Facing the past will be a matter that may be a strong consideration. Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.14. But that follows that previous verse. Forgetting those things which are behind and looking forward to those things which are before. Paul is exhibit A of a circumstance like that, isn't he? Paul persecuted the church. Paul had a hand in putting Stephen to death. Paul was a persecutor of those who tried to live in the way that was right. Paul was sorrowful for that way of life. Once he came to know the gospel, it bothered him to appreciate what he once had done. But he, did he know by forgiveness from the things of Christ, he could nonetheless proceed onward and upward and rightward? He did. May I suggest... Those kinds of thinkings are very useful to us. It's encouraging. At this point, having closed that slide, may I ask this? So in a practical way, what's required of you and me to overcome sin? I want a listing, A, B, C, D, and so forth. What do I have to do? Beginning on this next slide, we'll look at a number of features, and I've merely entitled it, Just Do It. I suspect much of what we're about to describe is not something unknown. It's not something that is completely unfamiliar to us at all. But so often what we need is the reminder, the encouragement, just do it. Lesson one, recognize sin. There has to be an appreciation in you and in me of the fact that what this is is wrong. It's not that it's optional. It's not that we can take it or leave it. What I have done is wrong. In so many cases, you and I don't like to admit we're wrong. We like to justify it. Well, I just didn't know better. I choose to rationalize it by appreciating the fact that maybe I can somehow excuse it. The first thing that you or I must do is, I was wrong. I violated the law of God. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have been there. I was wrong. 
one of the first gigantic steps that any of us will have to take is the full-blown admission, recognition, if you please, that I sinned. As you and I begin to develop that, isn't it true the Word of God presents to us some reminders and some beautiful examples as we launch on in that discussion? Aren't you reminded of the prodigal son in Luke 15? Here was a youngster, a youth, if you please, who himself desired his portion of the inheritance, and with it off he went into a far country. You'll note the far country wasn't where Dad lived. Dad would never have approved what he was doing. Aside from that, you'll notice in the far country he wasted his substance in riotous living. He lived foolishly. He lived in completely inappropriate ways. He lived in ways the home would never have allowed to happen. But he couldn't live like that while he was in Dad's house, so off he went. And yet the time came, it says, he came to himself. And then these words flow from his mouth. He knew that he'd made a mistake. He knew that he had erred and sinned, and he was ready to go back and confess it to Dad. I've sinned in your sight. That's what it'll take of you and me. We can't whitewash sin. We can't pretend it's not so bad. We've got to recognize it for what it is. It'll damn my soul and yours too. It'll send us to a devil's hell and the devil will grin the whole time. You'll notice in light of that, we have to make a confession of this. To recognize it's one thing, but it leads us to note this statement of 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We just aren't truthful with ourselves. I'm telling myself a lie. But he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. It's not easy sometimes to admit that I've been wrong. It's not easy to admit that I made a mistake. It's not easy. But yet, we have to swallow our pride and openly confess to God, I sinned. And that may involve our statement before others. This person whom I've offended in a very egregious way, I may need to straightforwardly come to that person and say, I'd like to talk to you. There's a burden resting on my heart. I am sorry for what I said. And more than anything else, I want you to forgive me. Those kinds of statements, as they challenge each of us to overcome sin, you'll notice where else it leads us, even from an Old Testament example. In Jeremiah 2, verse number 35, we have there a description of a people who themselves chose to deny their sin. Now this was ancient Israel, Judah if you please, these who knew the law of God and yet God through Jeremiah said they have denied their sin. They've chosen to live as though they weren't guilty. As we stated a moment ago, they were only deceiving themselves. One of the last points of that observation is in a reminder to all of us the impressive need for teaching on a point like this one. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 28, verses 18 and following, that all powers given unto me in heaven and in earth, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. 
teaching on all of these truths. The human family needs to know how to overcome sin. It isn't left for us to figure it out. God has told us. Apart from recognizing sin, we've also highlighted so far the impressive need. I've got to recognize it. That leads us to this. We stated a moment ago that word confess. Let's develop that a little more thoroughly. The acknowledgement of sin. The Bible has much to say about that, and you and I might begin this way. In Luke 18, verse 13, there's a description of a very problematic situation. You remember there was a Pharisee and a publican, and as they each made a dress on that occasion, you remember, in fact, how the Pharisee stated things. I thank thee I'm not like that publican. But consider the words of the publican. He said, in such humble petition and prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The publican acknowledged, I'm a sinner. He acknowledged that things were in fact such that they needed the mercy and forgiveness of God. When you and I wish to overcome sin, we have to acknowledge it. In a moment ago or earlier, we stated that that acknowledgement may well require that we make an address to somebody whom we have offended. It certainly requires we address God. As we develop that more thoroughly, look at some of these examples. Have you ever considered the places in the Bible where someone made the statement, I have sinned? Have you ever thought about the circumstances in which that was present? I haven't listed nearly all of them. There probably aren't as many as you might think. In 1 Samuel 26 verse 21, we do have an example from Saul. Now Saul is one who had lived, of course, at one time in a very blessed condition. But then he allowed things to arrogantly precede him in life to a direction that was not good. He ultimately acted very presumptuously and even disobediently in 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 15. However, we do finally arrive at this statement. He said, I have sinned, I have erred exceedingly, I have played the fool. That's rather weighty words, isn't it? I've played the fool. May I say that anybody that chooses to continue to live in sin is playing the fool. And that's not because that's my impression, but God would say that. For why would you want to do this? You'll notice also in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, the scene was a very telling one. David had by that point committed adultery and even murder. He had done of what God said ought not to be done. David was guilty of sin, and to that point he had loftily exalted himself above it and chose to deny it. However, God commissioned Nathan the prophet to come to David and told him a very memorable record, a beautiful kind of story. The point of the story was quickly seen by David. You remember how it went, that it was a ewe lamb, and there was a rich man that went and took that little ewe lamb from the family next door, and they didn't really have a whole lot. Finally, David said, that man's worthy to die. You remember Nathan said, thou art the man. And suddenly you can just imagine the countenance of David as his head drops. He knew he was the one. He had taken Bathsheba. He'd killed her husband. 
He was the man. Later, David confessed, I have sinned. Aren't you impressed to think that here was a man guilty of that, and on his road to overcoming it, he said, I've sinned. You may notice in Joshua 7 verse 20, there's an example of Achan. He too had done what God said ought not to be done. He, in fact, pilfered or stole what belonged in the treasury of the Lord. And yet we appreciate that ultimately Israel suffered defeat because there was sin in the camp. In Joshua 7 verse 20, we notice another statement, I have sinned. Maybe as you and I close that slide, might you and I notice today that that premise is still valid. I still have to confess, and so do you. In terms of those sins in your life, confess them. Just do it. Don't live beneath the burden of them. Don't try to, in fact, deal with them because you can't. You can't forgive them. Your friend can't forgive them. Your parents can't forgive them because you didn't sin against them. You sinned against God. And when I sin, that's what I do as well. May we understand to acknowledge, to recognize the character of our sin. But there's more besides that that must be said. As we come to this next slide, may I suggest at least some consideration of attitude as it relates to sin. We each are aware that the world in which we live sometimes takes a rather light and trivial view towards sin. Some don't even think it's bad at all. But yet even those who do often will code it in such a way that really it doesn't seem quite so serious. And there's where our viewpoint from the Word of God must be so different. Sin is serious. I've listed a number of verses to which I would turn your attention. Sin's a shameful thing. It's disgraceful. It's ugly. Putrid. Sickening. Sin is just a shameful, shameful choice. Jeremiah 3.25 begins it like this. You can imagine the people of Israel as they had a viewpoint like this and listen to God's reply. We lie down in our shame and our, con and our confusion covereth us for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even to this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Here was ancient Judah lying down in their shame. Did you notice? Sin is shameful. It's true, isn't it, that the world will often never present that side of it. Sin is pleasurable is what the world will say. Sin's enticing, inviting, encouraging, and fun, and pleasant. And I suppose momentarily you can't deny many of those things. But the world will never preach the shamefulness of sin. But it is shameful. It's disgraceful. You'll notice that next verse in Ezekiel 6, verse number 9. Notice the ugliness of sin and how it's portrayed. Here again, the people had already gone into captivity in Babylon, and yet through Ezekiel the prophet, God painted a picture of the ugliness of sin. That ugliness is, of course, so, so very challenging. Not only that, sin ought to be hated. The devil's mastery is such that he chooses to bring activities and thoughts and behaviors and actions and we don't really turn a hatred viewpoint toward them. We kind of buddy up to them. 
That's what the devil wants us to do, accepting it. But we've got to hate sin. Psalm 97, 10, and even highlighted in Amos 5, 15. As that hatred is described, may I suggest the next set of verses, the next ideas, one of which is this one. Sin is pathetic. Sin is pathetic. In Revelation chapter 3, as the description is given of the church at Laodicea, here was a congregation who thought that they had everything. They were wealthy, prosperous. They had all the attributes that went along with what they considered to be success. But yet as the God of heaven set forth through the wording of the Son, He said, You're wicked and blind and miserable and naked and wretched. They were told just the opposite of what they thought was true, and that was because of sin. Sin's pathetic. That pathetic character is highlighted even more as we appreciate what must be our viewpoint. Godly sorrow. And notice, when we find ourselves in sin, it mustn't be a mere sadness that we were caught. It mustn't be a mere sadness that someone knows I live like this. It must be a genuine sorrowness of heart that I violated God's law and I'm distanced from Him because of it. Didn't Paul say that in 2 Corinthians 17? For godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. I'll never be saved unless I realize the putrid, pathetic, ugly, and shameful character of sin. Maybe in finality to that, I mentioned earlier about David's example. I thought this was the right time to mention Psalm 51. One of the sweetest refrains in all the Bible about forgiveness is Psalm 51. I wonder how David reacted after Nathan told him, you're the man. What did David do? Did he, in a high and exalted way, pretend he'd never sinned? Did he go off and pretend that it never had happened? He couldn't have been saved if that was true. Psalm 51 is a description of how David reacted to his sin. In contriteness, in recognition, in acknowledgement, in confession, in humble petition to the God whom he loved, he wanted to be forgiven. Psalm 51 is a masterpiece highlighting the nature of what's involved in overcoming sin. Let's continue our journey though. Aside from this attitude and the acknowledgement and the confession that we noted earlier, there are some things we must not do. Things we must not do if we hope to overcome sin. First of all, we can't run from it. That does nothing to forgive it. Jonah tried that, didn't he? In the book of Jonah, we have God's express record of him. Go to Nineveh and preach. And at first, Jonah did not do it. In fact, he headed the opposite direction. Going to Tarshish was his desire. The furthest place he could imagine. But we remember how that turned out. God knew all along where he was. And ultimately, he found himself spending a little time in the belly of a great fish. Isn't it true that often sin can lead you to places you never dreamed you'd be? Can't run from sin. What else mustn't we do? We can't dismiss it. We can't pretend that we're above it or pretend it's not there or pretend that it really isn't as bad as the Bible says it is. What shall we 
say to this, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. You'll notice one last verse in light of that one in Acts 24, 25. As Paul stood before the rulers of the day to preach with such soundness and power, you'll notice he preached of righteousness, temperance, and the judgment to come. You can't run from sin, Felix. You've got to address it. One final set of thoughts. As we mentioned earlier today, in our society, I suppose especially, there's this tendency to rationalize it, to justify it, to sweep the seriousness of it beneath the rug. The Bible warns us in a host of passages about that. May I call to your attention simply the text in Luke 16. In verse 15 of that chapter, we read this statement, that what the world considers so noble, God says, is abomination. What the world says then to deal with sin is not what God says. Don't you and I wish to overcome sin and to do it God's way? Closing that slide, we notice surely, surely we wouldn't want to continue to live in it. Given its putridness, its ugliness, its patheticness, surely we wouldn't want to stay in it. Because in that state, we're separated from the saving nature of God's love at that point. We would want to rush to His side, surely, to race at once to the salvation that He, was, that he would offer us as we overcome and overwhelm that sin. To turn to the next slide. So far, the matters we've discussed and the forgiveness, we've said what we mustn't do. What about what we must do? On this slide, forgiveness. We have highlighted several times in the lesson that sin is a violation of God's law, and therefore I need His forgiveness. Thankfully, in the Bible, He details how that is to be obtained. It's in obedience to the gospel. And so, one who's an alien sinner, one who's never become a Christian, this is what you must do. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Believe with all of your heart that He really is who He said that He was, that He really did found the church, and that He really does reign currently at the right hand of God. Repent of your sins. Notice we've described that today as acknowledging them. As you acknowledge those sins, as you repent of them, make confession of them. Express the sorrow that you feel that you've ever committed them. As you do that, be baptized for the remission of your sins. Notice therein is where that remission is found, Acts 2.38. That forgiveness available through the blood of Jesus Christ. And notice at that point, whatever those sins may have been, whatever the features, the attributes, and the character of them, they have been forgiven. No longer does God hold them against you. That's the way to handle sin. That's the way to overcome it. And you'll notice in that statement, that leads you to appreciate, of course, the sweetness and the love that comes with the purification that then you can enjoy. I chose that as the lesson text, and that's what Brother James read earlier from 1 Peter 1, 22. Did you notice? They were purified in doing what? Obeying the gospel. 
What I suppose, what someone else may tell me, has little to no bearing on whether or not I'm forgiven. But what God says, when I obey the gospel, that purifies my conscience. It not only that, it purifies from me the guilt and character of those sins. And in that obedience, what a beautiful statement then it is to note the character of those who come forth from the watery grave of baptism. They entered the water a sinner. They came forth a saint. They entered into the water covered with the guilt and character of the sins of life, whatever they may have been, and they came forth washed from all of that. They then are ready to commence to live faithful until death. Now, surely it's true that even those who have become Christians may then choose to live in a way that's again sinful. Aren't you so thankful for the second law of pardon, as we often call it? 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. And just like that example of Simon in Acts 8, that person asked for prayers. He said, I've been wrong. I have done what I shouldn't have done. Would you pray to God for me? Today, we'd be honored to do that too. If there's anyone in this audience in that condition or position in life, maybe you've become a Christian, but you have again become entangled in sin. You can still be forgiven, you know. You can be such that those sins can be remitted and blotted out. But it won't happen just because you wish it so. You've got to do something. No wonder, again, the title of that is just do it. Today it might be that there's one or more in this audience that needs to do this. Either render initial obedience to the gospel or come back to your first love. Why don't you just do it? Jesus has expressed all those terms and He's made everything available and now the decision's yours. He's done all that He can do. Don't you want to be saved? Don't you want to be, again, made into a right relationship with your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? If we could assist you today in that way, why don't you overcome sin by just doing what we've described and do that at once while together we stand and while we sing?